Welcome to Your Path to Nonprofit Leadership, the weekly podcast that features the very best in career development in the nonprofit sector. I'm your host, Patton McDowell, and in addition to podcasting, I'm a leadership coach, a mastermind facilitator, a best-selling author, and a speaker. Speaking of our Mastermind Leadership Development Program, we have already filled both of our summer groups for the 2023 cohort. We're now accepting applications for the fall. If you have been thinking about your next steps on the leadership path, now is a good time to get your application in motion. Just go to the Mastermind page at PattonMcDowell.com for more information. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this fantastic conversation I had with Brian Collier, who recently joined the Gambrell Foundation as its new president after serving the Foundation for the Carolinas as its executive vice president for 16 years. Well, needless to say, Brian has had a wonderful career journey in the philanthropic sector as, uh, for example, the Foundation for the Carolinas is one of the largest community foundations in the United States. So he's had a local, regional, national, and even global perspective on all things related to nonprofit leadership. These varied perspectives makes his insight even more valuable as we discuss some of the key topics that are likely on your mind right now as well. For example... Do we have too many nonprofit organizations in our sector? What are the keys to a successful board of directors? How far do you need to go to establish your nonprofit organization as a community collaborator? What does that mean and how do you do it? These are just a few of the fascinating topics that Brian and I explore. And we even had a bonus digression down a path of all of Brian's very cool productivity tips and tools that you might find interesting as well. Lots of reasons to check out the show notes for this episode. It's number 213. Just go to the new podcast page at PattonMcDowell.com and you will find out all of the resources that Brian and I discuss as well as more information on the great work he's doing at the Gambrell Foundation. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Brian Collier. Brian, thank you for joining me on the path. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. I'm excited about this conversation, Brian. You and I have had many conversations over the years, and you have a wonderful leadership journey uh, from which I know there have been many lessons learned. And so I know our listeners are eager to hear kind of your perspective because you've worked in different areas of the philanthropic sector, which I think adds even more value to what we're going to talk about. And let's open up with a fundamental question, I guess, as you look at the landscape for nonprofit leadership right now, is there a key challenge? that you see nonprofit leaders facing right at this moment? You, you know, working in the nonprofit sector has always had its challenges. I'm sure if if you if it was 50 years ago, you'd have challenges, 30 years ago, 10, whatever. Um, but I, I kind of feel like there, there is a unique set of challenges right now. And re- with the economy, with trying to hire people, you know, with, with a bunch of different things that I think are, are leading up to some real headwinds in the sector for people to even uh, remain, to to want to come into the sector, to remain in the sector. And so if I, if I thought about what I believe is the biggest challenge facing nonprofit leaders right now, I think it comes back to almost like a there's two core things that I see that are challenges. One is I still think that nonprofit leaders are forced to deal with this situation where people don't think that they run a business. Yeah. In other words, they, they don't think that they don't think they face the same challenges that a, that a for-profit company faces, the same competitive competition for talent and resources. All of these things that exist in the for-profit world exist the, similarly for nonprofit leaders without all of the tools that you have uh, as a for-profit company. In other words, you can't just raise prices whenever you want to. You can't want to cut lines of businesses. You can't just lay off people without consequences um, and the, you know other tools that uh, companies have. And again, I think it comes back to this level of respect that nonprofit leaders um, uh, don't get when it comes to running these businesses, whether it's a $200,000 business or a multi-million dollar nonprofit, you are running a business with the same challenges. So I think that's one. And then the other one, which is a little bit of an ancillary to it, is 
we just live in a world where more and more basic needs and basic services are pushed to the nonprofit sector to provide right. without resources. And I just think that that creates a huge level of stress. It creates uh, a false reliance on the nonprofit sector to solve all of our problems. It, uh, and the, 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 we can probably get into this at some point during the conversation, but I'm really at a point of having this philosophical uh, a challenge in my brain about how we treat people and how our country and communities have decided uh, to to um, make nonprofits responsible for that. So those two together, I think, create a situation where I really believe in a lot of the conversations that I have that um, nonprofit leaders are wondering whether they stay in this field and whether, you know, go work for Amazon or some other company without the stress. Such a good point, Brian. And, and I love your emphasis on the term business because you're right. I think sometimes the, the term even nonprofit doesn't generate the credibility that it, it warrants and, and the complexity you just described and the lack of resources. It sounds like philosophically uh, you're concerned that the sector is expected to do more with less and therefore a symptom, because I was going to ask you about a symptom that everybody talks about is the turnover in the sector. But I guess, Brian, we shouldn't be surprised, right, given what you just said. Yeah, no, I mean, if you look at all of the things, in fact, I've done a lot of work over the last year uh, with a number of nonprofit leaders uh, to just going out to ask them, you know, what are the, I don't, there's things that are core to your business that I know are going on. There's always fundraising that's needed for that. <clears throat> but what, what are the, what are the, what are the headwinds that you're facing as an organization that not that, uh, the community should be aware of. And what they're looking at is rising interest rates, which um, play havoc on affordable housing, on construction of projects, uh, supply chain delays that again are 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 really playing, um, you know, really doing a lot of damage to capital campaigns. And you don't know when, right. when you can complete something, you don't know how much it's gonna cost at the end of the day. Turnover rates are huge, nonprofit leadership turnover rates, retaining people, uh, what are you going to pay them? Benefit packages. All of these are things that any CEO in our corporate world is facing, any small business owner is facing. And I don't think that there's an acknowledgement that all of those come home uh, uh, to roost in the nonprofit sector, again, without some of the tools in the tool bag that for-profit leaders have. Again, great points, Brian. Uh, I, I can see our listeners nodding their head right now with you. They are glad to hear a sympathetic voice because I think you're right. They're facing those issues for sure. And again, uh, many of those issues existed. I know, Brian, when you joined the sector uh, a few years ago, I won't put a timeline on it, but you have had uh, some <laughs> wonderful you. experiences. And let me ask that question for those listening, wondering about getting into this field. Why did you get into the nonprofit or philanthropic sector? So I started my career as a trial attorney in Florida and uh, for a large litigation firm, a defense firm, so represented companies uh, who had been sued uh, primarily for products uh, defects. So it was almost all automobiles, uh, you know, General Motors, Honda, all of those companies for different uh, things that were alleged uh, uh, to be defective in a car. Uh, and going all the way back, this will really date me. Some of the cases that uh, that were lingering when I started my career were rear seat shoulder belts. You know, whether because the early cars didn't have them and caused wow. injury. So that was the beginning of my career was around things like that. Um, and and I, you know, when I was in law school, I thought I was going to be working for the Justice Department, uh, saving the world. Didn't really work out that way because I needed to make some money and the job that was available was this products liability firm, which is amazing. I loved my time. Uh, but over a, a course of a few years of my career, I kind of realized that it wasn't fulfilling in the way that I had expected it to be. Uh, and I met an individual. And again, this might come up in, in another context in our conversation because of the power of social capital and how much I believe that that is what central to uh, anyone's career and trajectory and right. life in general. <clears throat> right. But I met an individual um, who in we met for drinks uh, once a week or so, and I, he mostly just listened to me complain. Um, and in one conversation, he changed my life. He, he uh, introduced me to a member, a, a person who was on a bunch of board of directors in Florida for nonprofits. And he introduced me 
uh, or led the way to me being introduced to a woman who became my wife. Uh, so in one conversation <laughs> changed my life completely. Yeah, that, that's a good conversation to pay attention to. It sounds yeah. like. Yeah. But early on, I thought I was going to be, um, I thought it was going to be a general counsel for a nonprofit. And then quickly I became a, uh, they, I got there and there were some issues with management. Uh, so I, they asked me to take over management of it. Um, and so that was a drug and alcohol uh, residential program. So a little outside of anything that I had really known too much of, but did that for a while. So I ran uh, an organization in Florida, was a director, then went on to merge that with an agency in New York. So then I went to move to New York City, right. became the director of the New York region. For, it was a very large, over $100 million organiza organization. But along the way, my wife uh, had been working for Paul Newman, and Paul Newman was building camps all over the world for chronically ill children. So I uh, I was really in admiration of, of that work and working for these kids who had chronic uh, uh, medical illnesses. And then um, was asked uh, eventually to come help Richard Petty, Kyle Petty, and a few other people in, in Paul Newman in the NASCAR community build a camp here in North Carolina. Uh, so my wife and I uh, helped create what was uh, what is now Victory Junction, which is a you know multi million dollar facility yep. for kids. And then again, the the interesting thing we went on. I went on to move to Washington D.C., where I worked for an organization called Kaboom, building playgrounds all over North America. But this social capital thing again popped rears its head uh, because um, the first non NASCAR non entertainment grant that we got uh, to build this camp was from Foundation for the Carolinas. And I made great friends there. And uh, I got an opportunity to come down and interview yes. for a job that they had open. And Michael Marsicano and I just fell in love with each other. And I knew this is where I wanted to be. So we moved to Charlotte, worked for Foundation for the Carolinas for 16 years, and then made the journey over here to Gambrell Foundation uh, at the end of 2022. That is fantastic. And of course, it, I got lots of follow-up questions there. We're going to talk about the Gambrell Foundation in a minute because you're doing wonderful work there. Um, anything surprised you, Brian? In other words, as you alluded to some of the issues of nonprofit leadership, too much on their plate, not enough resources, lack of respect. Did you find evidence of those things during your journey and how'd you deal with them? Oh, yeah. And, and, and in fact, I, you, I really think that that the fact that I have not spent my entire career in the nonprofit sector is a major advantage in, in many ways. Um, uh, on one side of the equation, I understand, you know, when you when you go out and try to sell a product or a service and you know, the nonprofits come and ask you for money, you, you, the, I understand that dynamic and, and some of the things that, that go on there. Um, but I've also I also saw firsthand uh, when I made the switch to nonprofit, so when I left the legal career back, uh, you know, a long time ago, um, I was treated with less respect. Uh, uh, you know, when it was interesting because when people knew that I was a lawyer, uh, I, in other words, when I made the transition to the nonprofit sector, right, there was people. There were people who I would go into meetings and they would treat me differently than I have been treated a few months earlier. Wow. When I would tell them that I'm an attorney, you know, or when they would find out, because early in my career, I'd actually keep using uh, my uh, either a JD or my ESQ uh, yeah, after my name. Uh, it, confirmation it changed the conversation. Right, right. Changed the conversation completely. They, they, oh, 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 we can treat you with a different level of respect. Not knowing that... Um, First of all, there are people who are smart and not so smart in the, you know, in, in, in practice. In any profession. In right. any profession. <laughs> and yes. so, it, it, but, but, but they would just treat me differently. And then I, what I saw when I made that switch over to the nonprofit sector is how resource deprived these individuals are, you know, the organizations and people who work there, how resource deprived they are, how smart they are, how dedicated they are. Now there are there there are the same challenges. You know, people think that they're going to go work in the nonprofit sector and everything's uh, rainbows and unicorns and you're saving the world. And you and I both know that's is true on occasion, but not <laughs> right. day to day, not every day, right? <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I saw huge huge um, differences between the sectors and challenges and um, the way that people were treated, and this idea that 
hey, if I give you, you know, if I give the organization 10 bucks, I want to know what's my return on, on investment. And I want to, you know, I want to measure uh, you know, everything from that $10. Uh, it's just, it's, it's a strange dynamic that we've created in this country around philanthropy. I could not agree more. And we will unpack that more because you've certainly had to think about it and deal with it. I'm struck by, again, your experience because I can relate. I remember working for Special Olympics International and friends and colleagues, in essence, Brian, saying, oh, that's nice, but when are you going to get a real job? You know, in so many words, which is disappointing. And I hope there's positive movement on that front where the profession of nonprofit leadership is better regarded. But we have work to do, and I'm glad you're lifting it up. And I I, want to ask you, I guess, a a quick personal productivity question, because I've always been impressed, Brian, with the volume of activity you've had to manage, the relationships you manage. uh, I can only imagine the kind of data coming at you in your various roles. How do you stay organized? And for a nonprofit leader who's juggling with the volume, any tips or tricks that you found to keep you organized? Yeah. Uh, and I'm a, so one of the things that I, I think anybody who, who really knows me well knows that I, I've got I've got like an inch deep knowledge about a lot of different topics. Because I love, <laughs> right, right. I, I, you know, I love I love the work that I do. But I also love technology. I love productivity. I love, you know, so I'm always trying new apps and new um New things. The other thing that people know about me, if, if, again, if you're close, uh, is my love of paper, organizers, fountain pens. You know, <laughs> so I have like a I digital footprint of yeah, I have div- digital footprint of things. But then I also have um, this analog world that if you came to my house, you'd think that you'd walked into a paper and stationery store <laughs> uh, because of. So and, and why I bring that up is because I have both an analog and digital way of taking of 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 keeping track of everything. So, for instance, you know, uh, with in the analog world, I do a lot of mind map mind mapping. Nice. So, I, you know, I draw out everything. What's my central premise? What are the things that flow off of that? And I try to think in terms of of continuum. So on one end of the spectrum, it looks like this. On the other end, it looks like a zero or, you know, so what is what is the full range of of, of options that go from zero to a hundred or A to Z, whatever it is. Um, and then I mind map it out. And then uh, from the, in the digital world, I then use uh, different things, uh, different tools to, to help me um, with that. So mind node is an app that, that I use, craft is a is an app that I use to to take notes in Obsidian, uh, so a little bit of a little bit of Apple Notes and things like that. But yep, really, yep. I use more things uh, that are tools to really uh, one keep account because a lot of things that are happening for me, they might have happened three or four years ago, and I want to be able to uh, recall that information. I read a lot, so I want to have the notes. Uh, I, I use an app called Readwise, which oh, whenever you make that. a highlight. In um, in Kindle, it will uh, take those um, highlights and put them in, so I can go back and refer to them later. Yeah, I'm always testing. I mean, I, I've got <laughs> I've got a, a bunch of apps that are, you know that uh, um, note notability things like that where I'm taking digital notes. So yeah, don't even oh, get me going on that. I I, I want to keep going and nerd out for just a moment with you because I love that. <laughs> I mean, so you're saying that you, you you keep topical kind of categories. So if, if you know, affordable housing is something that comes up, you'll go back through your notes and meetings and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Tell me a little bit how that works. Yeah. It, yeah. So, um, so a bunch of different, so on the analog world, I'm actually super particular about the kind of notebooks and paper that I use. So I use uh, for I use a what's called an A4, which is a large uh, yep. style horizontal. So it's 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 lengthwise, yep. Yep. and that way I can keep notes in in the uh, the notebooks that I have. And there's a special we can maybe link to those. Um, but then on the digital world, what I try to keep, and I by the way, I can go back to my notes. I I put I have everything dated, so I can go back and say, uh, oh, I met with this person in 2013, and here's my notes from that meeting. Um, and, and it helps me because I can hold people accountable because a lot of times they don't take notes. They don't remember what they told That's me. That's right. Or the, the, the key, you know, the promise that they made or the, the, uh, uh, whatever it is that I need to go back. But then in the digital world, I, um, I have them by category. So a lot of the things I'm working on now around mental health or culture or democracy, 
affordable housing, uh, a lot of things like that, I can go back and either take notes about what I, you know, see notes that I, me personally, or some notes from a meeting. Um, and I'm working with, a, I'm trying out a, a different, a bunch of different other um, tools like Obsidian. I haven't really learned um, exactly how to use Obsidian, but I'm I'm obsessed You're working with, on it. with that idea. Yeah. Uh, um, and then there's one that I'm drawing a blank on. And then by the way, if you looked at my office right now, you would see uh, huge pieces of flip chart paper that I've got tacked to the wall of ideas that I'm thinking about or whiteboards that I've got little notes and things like that. So I try to have everything in front of me so that I can kind of go, oh yeah, I was trying to visualize it um, as well. Right. Yeah. And I did that through the economic mobility task force. I had it like, I'd hear a podcast and I'd hear someone say a quote that I want to remember and I note it down, but I'd also put it on a flip chart page and have it on the wall so that when I went to write, I could put, you know, oh yeah, I remember that piece again. I love that. Uh, and we we use a phrase in our mastermind program with nonprofit leaders, curating knowledge. In other words, the volume, the knowledge is there, right? The volume is unbelievable, but your ability to sort it and organize it is what you just described. And that's what I think is a you know critical skill, frankly, for leadership. Yeah, you know, the other one, I'm just trying to remember the other one that I use a lot is Devin Think. So Devin Think is one where I, if I see an article, because that's the other thing, you need constantly reading, you, then you write, where did I see that? Right, so right. So Dev, Devin Think is another one where I can, because I use a Mac and iPad and my phone, iPhone, I they're all Mac, a lot of these are Mac-centered kind of things. So right, I use right. those to kind of go back in and um, Devin Think is where I save all my articles and then Spell share them. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Brian, spell that, please, for our listeners who Devon think. Is that what you said? So Devon think is D-E-V-O-N-T-H-I-N-K. Nice. It, you know, it's interesting you should ask, because one of the things I've always thought about is whether I should do a blog or a, or even a podcast on technology for nonprofits. You should. Uh, Maybe that'll uh, be our next I, conversation, <laughs> if you'll entertain yeah, it. I, I mean, again, I'm surrounded by stuff that... You know, it was interesting during COVID, if you came to my home office, I had like four screens, three screens up, plus an iPad, plus a mini iPad, oh plus my gosh. the phone. <laughs> it, was, it looked like mission control. I think we're going to definitely have to revisit that because there are folks that are in that space and want to brainstorm with you. There are others that are like, Brian, yeah, I'm overwhelmed. I need ideas. So I'm delighted to lift that up. And I always start with mind mapping. Uh, so right. mind mind node m i n d n o d e is is my app that I use. But I also just draw it out on a piece of paper. Yes. But if you look at anything, I start with like, okay, my central premise is this, and then what are all the things that I need? The I, one during COVID, I think it became like almost like a piece of art because it was like all the <laughs> so things many. that were going on. And it, yeah, well, and it, but but I, I will say this: this is the other piece is when I showed that to the members of the COVID response grant board, who are mostly for-profit leaders, when I showed them the level of thinking that I was doing around this, it raised, they already knew I was a you know pretty competent person. Yes. But it blew them because I, I was way ahead of them. Yes. I was way ahead of their thinking in terms of the connection between things, the the relationship between organizations and issues and so it, to me, it also doing some of this raises the respect that you get from people because they look at it and they go, wow, this person, <laughs> this is not a person to be to be uh, messed with in terms of their organization and thinking. Great point. Great takeaway to illustrate, frankly, many of our nonprofit leaders that could do things like that, that would engender respect, right, Brian, to your earlier point, your board mm -hmm. maybe needs to see more evidence of your mind mapping or what version you do. And, and so I'm delighted you lift that up. And I'm noting that uh, we're going to have to return to this for sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll end with this. It's like, if the more you can show your, it's like, it's going all the way back to elementary school and middle school, the more you can show your work and yes. not just the answer, yes. the more respect and the more that people think that this is a very, it well, one, it allows you to answer any questions that come up uh, that are reasonable. Yes. Um, and then two, it again, it when you come when you show them the answer without your work, the, the board members are going to come in 
not knowing what to do. So they're just going to try to poke holes in things. But the more you can show your work, the fewer questions or the or the better the questions that are going to be. Um, they're not just going to get the, you know, the the basic ones. You're Surface ones level. Gonna, okay. Yeah, cha I'll challenge your thinking on this because right. because you gave me more information. Yep, fantastic. And again, exactly what I knew you would provide, which is kind of thoughtful insight as to one of the, I think, the key areas of nonprofit leadership and under resourced yet high volume activity. You got to be organized and indeed show your work. So, like the underline there as a good one. Uh, let me shift gears with you, Brian, because you are part of a, the Gambrell Foundation. And for our listeners that don't know about the Gambrell Foundation, tell us what is it and what do you do there? Yeah, so, so it, it, it was a great honor to have an opportunity to join the Gambrell Foundation at the end of last year. What most people in our community would know is that I had actually been doing some things with them over the years uh, because they had a real in, uh, early interest in the economic mobility work uh, and wanted to know more. Wanted and, and were very humble in in what you know the challenges that they were facing as a foundation. So I was working with their team over the last few years in connection with, they had a funded foundation for the Carolinas. So I've been working with Sally and Hannah and Laura and the rest of the members of the team here for a few years, but very much part-time, but it helped me uh, develop a level of uh, respect from them and it led to a further opportunity uh, down the road. But the Gambrell Foundation has a long history. Uh, it came out of uh, the Belk family, the Belk department store family. Uh, one of the branches of that family. And um, Ms. Gamb Sarah Gambrell uh, had a long history of being a, a corporate leader, a female corporate leader at a time when those were not common and fighting for those who were underdogs, uh, whether it were, was women in the workforce, or women in the community, those uh, LGBT community, whoever she felt was <clears throat> not being treated with a level of respect kindness, uh, she fought for them. That translated into her daughter, Sally, uh, who has been an amazing leader, one of the smartest people I've, I've, I've had the opportunity to come in contact with here in Charlotte. And so when I came here, they had a long history in social justice, in education, racial equity, things like that, but no real focus. In other words, they were doing great things, but not known for any one thing in particular. And so my job now is to help define that, uh, not in, in honor the history, but also look to uh, what Sally's legacy will be and her family's legacy, and then what the future uh, uh, needs of the community are, are, again, in close connection to what the family's passions are and legacy, sense of legacy. So that's that's been a wonderful thing. Uh, been here about six months. And helping helping do the helping the family uh, work on those has been a tremendous uh, tremendous honor. Um, and I, what I'm really appreciative of is that I'm being given time to help think through what that might look like. And I think it's going to be something that will be unique. It'll it'll support it, it will it will be supportive of the things that we've done in the past. It will be supportive of other big things that are needed in the community. But I think we're finding our way to something that other foundations, for the most part, aren't um, aren't aren't looking at intentionally. Yeah, I love that. And what a gift, isn't it, that Sally and and the the foundation are giving you to apply all your wonderful experience and be thoughtful about the strategic plan going forward. And of course, I had the privilege of meeting Sally's mom, Mrs. Gambrell, when she was a trustee at Queens. And and Brian, you said it beautifully. I mean, talk about a powerhouse, a, a female leader during an era when, frankly, females were not often given a seat at the table. And I think, I guess the foundation will continue to embody, right, Miss Gambrell's, uh, her leadership skills. And of course, frankly, she was lifting up folks that otherwise weren't getting attention. Yeah, and, and you know, part of it, you know, the thing that I've really um, had to do some education on is you can assume because of the grant like the thing that was awarded a grant, you can make assumptions about why they did something. So for instance, if she, if this foundation gave money for a performing arts center, your assumption might be that her, that it was because of their love of the arts. It was their right. love of right. you know, some performing arts or, or visual arts or something like that. But instead getting here and understanding the, the family and why it wasn't because of that. It was because 
that because of her belief that a center like that would be a place of creativity where new ideas would be spawned, where people would think critically about big issues, it had very little to do with the arts. It had everything to do with creating a beautiful facility that would serve as an inspiration for people to think in new and big and bold and innovative ways. And that's that. it, it sounds, it, it's a nuance, but it's an important nuance uh, because it, it, it defines uh, how you might approach a foundation, uh, which we might talk about. Indeed. But, you, you know, it's not making the assumption that because it did a performing arts center that they're all into the arts. It's really what what led to that grant. What in our case it was a very large grant, but it was for a particular purpose um, that, as a as a development officer, you need to dig a little deeper. Well put, and a good segue, in fact, to. Uh, I've got four questions for you, Brian, in anticipation for this conversation. I've been talking to nonprofit leaders all over the country who, as you might imagine, the top question often on their mind is, all right, you're talking to a funder. And of course, Brian, you've had perspective of lots of funders through the Foundation for the Carolinas. What are the key elements to a successful grant application? Are there certain kind of headlines that emerge that you would say, because I bet you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly in terms of appeals and applications. So, all right, what are the keys to a successful one? I've seen it all. I've probably written uh, some that are that fit in all the categories as well, you know, because I don't forget, I used to work for a nonprofit trying to raise money. Indeed. So I've some Indeed. Bad, I'm sure I've written some bad brands <laughs> and, and without understanding, uh, you know, that it was a bad grant. I thought it was great at the time, or sometimes I just, I did not think it was great. I put in, didn't put my best effort. But um, so, I, you know, as you can probably tell just from the conversation, I, I think in terms of continuums, in terms of uh, mind mapping. So I have a mind map that I that I use to help me think through grants. But I also have what I call like a two by two matrix of 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 how I think about grants when they come to uh, the foundation, either when I was at Foundation for Carolinas or here, and they're combinations of focus, you know, how much they address the focus areas that we uh, are interested in, and then how well it the grant itself meets that that focus area in terms of being well written and uh, measurable, or what you know, whatever the things that I'm that I'm looking for. Right. And so the the grants that I try to make all the time are in the upper right hand corner of that two by two matrix. It's a it meets it's you know it meets uh, the the focus area and the uh, uh, goals of the foundation itself, which remember in in some cases are we want output and outcomes, but we also might need brand recognition. There are a lot of things that go into why you might do a grant, and and they differ between sort of a community foundation grant program, a private foundation. Private foundation doesn't need the brand stuff as much as maybe a community foundation does, or there might be cases where the private foundation is looking for recognition. So right, got to be right. aware of that. So the upper right hand is it meets all of our goals uh, as closely as possible, um, has a high degree of likelihood of success, not guaranteed, but high degree of likelihood of success. And the grant itself is written well or has the components. So I always say good grant, um, good grant application, good grant outcomes. So that's in my upper right-hand corner. Those are the ones I want to make most of the time. Yes. In my upper left-hand corner would be, doesn't necessarily meet all of our grant uh, grant outcomes, but it might be strategic for some reason. So for instance, a lot of funders try to work together uh, to, to get outcomes that are sometimes important to them, less important to me, but there might be a need where I have down the road where I would like to be able to leverage that that relationship, especially in the corporate sector. So that's in my upper left hand. Doesn't meet all of my needs, but for some reason there's a leverage opportunity or it's it, there's there's for, for some reason it's a good community outcome, still well written, well written grant. Right, so that's right. the area where I want to stay most of the time. In the bottom right-hand corner is a grant I will almost never make. I hope to never make it. it it'll, it'll likely turn out to be a mistake, yeah. which would be doesn't really meet any of our needs, and it's a very poorly written grant. Um, and, and those are going to be really bad. It, you know, grant grammatical errors, uh, no jargon, uh, with no real substance. And then the bottom left-hand is the one that's the most difficult for me. It kind, it kind of, it, it kind of sounds like it could be a good one 
it's it's maybe it's written by a grassroots organization where maybe there are grammatical errors. There are things that I might want to work with them to get it up into one of those upper quadrants because there's something there. You don't want to dismiss a grant just because it's poorly written, right? Or right. because you know. So those are those are the real difficult ones. So that's kind of how I think about it, and then. Um, I'm always thinking in terms of of um, because remember most grant applications are going to be character limited. Yeah. So what I try to coach people on is the thing you the thing that you need to try to really figure out is how to use those limited characters to convey some sense of color to the whole thing. Because remember, it's just going to basically be black and white written right. written words. Right. So how do you help develop? How do you help me understand? that you have a passion for this, that you have knowledge uh, about this that's particular and specific and uh, something I, sh I should invest in, that you're that this is an important issue. So I, I would just tell people, don't waste time telling me what I already know, because a lot of people will use characters, because uh, I'm pretty well known in this community for the economic mobility work that we've done every year. So don't waste characters telling me about Charlotte's low mobility rates. I already yeah, know that. You already know that. Don't you don't tell me how you're going, tell me what unique, interesting, innovative, whatever it is, way that you will address that. Don't waste characters on uh telling me uh the facts that uh, again I as a grant maker should should already know. It's great advice, Brian. Your quadrant is a wonderful illustration that I think, again, if I'm writing a grant out to kind of put that grid together myself, particularly as it applies to your foundation or any foundation I'm applying to. And I guess, Brian, we should, number one, do our homework. You don't, for us to miss the opportunity when a website of a funder like yours tells us a lot. I mean, do you want interaction with the the, the potential grant? I mean, and I know every foundation is different, but you know, it, do you like to have that conversation or would you say, no, let's respect the application process first? That That's a great question. And it's highly individualized to the foundation. Some, some you only go through the portal and if you're, or you, you have to figure out how to get to them and then they might invite you. Some actually have like an invitation opportunity, you know, so uh, this is not universal. So I would do your homework to figure out for, for the most, in most cases, I want to have a relationship with the organization uh, very early on. Uh, so I am fairly open to meetings. Uh, I'm not going to meet with an organization where I just don't see any potential and you know there's a lot of red flags about it. Right. But right. I think if you asked anyone at my job at the Foundation for the Carolina, if you asked anyone about my reputation in the community, my hope would be that they would say that I'm fairly open to having meetings uh, I'm not, uh, I'm agnostic to size of organization. So small, medium, large, right. uh, uh, grassroots, whatever. Um, I, I just, I, I don't, my fundamental belief in grant making is that it's between people and that it is essentially two promises that are being made. In other words, it's a promise by a funder to give someone money. And it's a promise by that company that organization through their people to fulfill the promise. In other words, I will do these things in, in return for the promise for you to give me the money to do those things. Now, the scale of those things, the outcomes, all of those are up for debate. But again, what I try to tell everyone is like, these are between people. The, you know, at the end of the day, the organization is just a subset. And what scares me sometimes is, is the vulnerability of those people to leave that organization uh, to not get paid, uh, you know, a, a, a decent salary that wants them to be there, so that my money, uh, the money that I'm giving to the organization, organization has a higher likelihood of being successful. Uh, so, again, I just I can't stress enough that the more you come across as a person I want to work with, in, in my case, I want to work with people who are passionate, who are kind, who come to me early with issues, either some of them are going to be good. Hey, we have a chance to multiply the outcome with a little more money or with some other kind of resource, or, Hey, it's not, it, it looks like we're veering off course. The commute, the, the um, ecosystem that we thought was going to exist doesn't exist the way that we thought it was going to exist. So therefore we need to recalibrate. 
uh, all of the you know coming and talking to me about those things early on, we believe me, I, I live in a world of constant complexity. My legal background gives me that um, yes, understanding yes. from the get go. So the more you talk to me about the complexity, the more I'm going to understand the situation that you're in, and I can help you think through uh, what the p- possible solutions might be. Uh, so I enjoy that. It, it, anyone who tries to sell me that they that the world is simple. <laughs> or that uh, they don't they don't that their organization has a 99%. If you come and tell me that your organization has has a 99% success rate with anything, I that is a red flag for me to ask I don't you buy it. To, to put you in the to, to that's when you go into cross examination mode yeah. with me uh, because I don't believe it. <laughs> yes, and I've seen evidence of that and you're good at it and and it uh in fact is a good reminder. Uh, all right, wonderfully done. Question 2. And you've seen both sides of this coin. Uh, it's uh, maybe the slanted way to describe it is the proliferation of nonprofits. You and I both run into people who have wonderful ideas and passion. Hey, Brian, I can do it better if I just start my nonprofit. But others are saying we got too many. Any thoughts on the concept of do we have too many nonprofits? Well, I, th- I think that can be used as a shield, a shield and a sword in certain cases. So in general, um, I don't have a pat answer for that because is if there is a if there is a, a need that is neglected in the community that someone has identified uh, that is worthy of you know investigation evaluation and potential support I, I I would never say that that there's no room for another nonprofit because there always there's going to be something out there right in general. I would say that I haven't found too many spaces where there isn't another pathway uh, to get that need addressed. And so my my advice would be do a ton of homework before you think that your passion is to create your own new organization. So go out and figure out, are others doing it? Are others working in a similar field that maybe you could go to work for them and uh, do something that you know aligns with the the direction that you um, that you want to go in. Can you go talk to non- other nonprofit leaders about what they're doing, and maybe they could, uh, maybe they will see that yes, you've identified a need that they could um, uh, uh, build into their program. Right. Uh, I mean, you have to remember that at the end of the day, that no matter how great your idea is, you're going to be swimming against swimming with a bunch of other competitors right. who are doing doing all amazing for the most part. They're bad charities, but for the most part, <laughs> they're all doing good work and they're all competing for the same limited pool. And what you think of as a passion, as just hitting your in your face kind of thing about, oh, you know, everyone should see the the value of this isn't going to play. It isn't going to, it's not going to turn out that way for the most part. And I, I, I really find the ones that, that challenge me the most are people who have had some kind of real severe um, issue that has occurred in their life. Right. And they feel right. like that's their moment to make the change and yes. do something that they're called to do. So, you know, they've lost a job, they've lost their job or in the, I've, I've worked for, you know, at least one family where they've lost a child. Yes. Um, Even in Paul Newman's organization, you know, all of the people came there because the child was in medical distress. Some had already lost their child. Right. And those are moments where people think I'm going to start my own nonprofit. I'm going to start my own foundation. And I just I, I warn people, don't do things in the middle of of grief. Or the middle of trauma, uh, try to take time to heal and try to take time to 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 think about the things that you need to to do in your life before thinking about a nonprofit. Because what happens is the passion that you had and the love that you had for something and somebody doesn't really translate into the world over a long period of time. There's a lot of grief and a lot of people who come to support you. Right. But when you take on that nonprofit, eventually those people turn back to their lives and you have now created this thing that you're responsible for that in many cases will be tied to your to this traumatic event that you will have to relive relive over and over in order to raise money. And it's just the it's just the reality of nonprofit. So just be very careful about those times. So 
In general, I think there are a lot of nonprofits out there fe feeding off of the same limited pool of resources. Right. I would say there are very few opportunities for there to be a brand new nonprofit that is going to be uh, very successful. But those moments do exist, just like any other business. If you've if you've done your your business case analysis and you've identified your market, your um, you know what you're trying to do, your outcome, how you're different how you're going to differentiate yourself. Uh, I think there's there's room for that, but you've got to do a lot of homework. I, I think, you know, the common theme that seems to keep coming up <laughs> I hear it. this I hear conversation it. Yes. is homework, homework, homework. I, I love it. In fact, you've answered the third question um, because I was going to ask you about kind of, you know, community collaboration, what you look for in terms of evaluating an idea. And you said it beautifully that, hey, before I show up with a new idea, you're going to expect me to have done my homework and make sure no one else is doing it, right? Right. right. Well, and, and here's the thing: is that again, I guess you know, with that, there's even what I want you to know. What I want you to be, I want you to be smarter than me on the thing that you're attempting to move the needle on, yep. whatever that is. And one of one part of that is I want you to know who your competitors are who your potential collaborators are. And I also want you to know that I also want to be able to know that you have determined how you're going to work with them or how they're so different from you that no, you know, those organizations you might think would be collaborate, I would collaborate with, but they do things in a different way or they're focused in a different manner, whatever it is. And therefore I'm not going to be working with them, but I know who they are, what they do. They know who I am. They know what I'm thinking about. Uh, we won't we won't be overlapping. So, you know, collaboration doesn't mean that you're necessarily working with them. It, and it also doesn't, it could mean that you just know of them and that maybe you all are working together from a policy perspective or some right. other way, but you're not right. literally working together. Good point. You could be within the same ecosystem, right? Serving a population, but maybe doing some different things. And that's a great distinction. I'm glad you have made um, all right, Brian, I'm going to jump to the fourth and final question, and one I know you have thoughts on. Uh, there are many nonprofit leaders listening right now that have an interesting dynamic with their board of directors. Uh, some have wonderful relationships. Others, however, may have board members micromanaging them, driving them crazy, or disengaged. Uh, and, of course, that spectrum is a long one. But what's your sense of the state of kind of leadership between staff and board or board members in particular? Well, it goes back to where we started, uh, which is I, I think even people who join boards as board members don't always think of the organization that they've joined as a company, Good <laughs> as point. a business. Uh, and so uh, I think I've joked, I think I've joked in your presence before that uh, having had nonprofit uh, boards over the years, there are board members who I think lose their mind when they join a board. And by, and by <laughs> what that, mean, what I What do you mean, mean by that? Yeah. Well, yeah, by, by that, what I mean is that, you know, when I became, when I went to work for a nonprofit, I was really looking forward to, my 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 training is as a lawyer. I, I have an undergraduate degree in business, but I didn't really go into business. And my, I, I was really looking forward to working with, board members who could bring a skill set to me that I wasn't, that wasn't really one that I had honed very much. So right, I wanted to right. see how they did strategic planning, how they did product development, how they did marketing communications. You know, I wanted to learn, I wanted like a mini MBA by working with these people. And, you know, some people are really lucky that they have board members who are at the highest levels of corporate community um, or, you know, other sectors. And you really want to, you, I mean, I use my board as a way of becoming smarter, one, to guide the direction of the organization, give me feedback and wisdom, but also personally, I, I need that uh, information or I need that um, to feed my my curiosity and my yes. own uh, direct, uh, you know, sense of, of purpose. And oftentimes, I think nonprofit board members, they come onto the board and they don't do the things, they don't ask the questions, they don't do the analysis, they don't show demonstrate some of the skills that they did that they would at their companies when they joined the board because they think that we do this only because of passion and love and that we can't be you know that we don't have the competency in some cases um i i just i think that they allow they don't ask some key questions sometimes that would have 
allowed the nonprofit to go in a different direction. Yeah, yep. really the critical eye. Maybe right? it would have made us think. Yeah, yeah, right. the, yeah. The whole idea of a critical friend. I just think they lose their minds and they put the organization at risk because they would have asked a question if they worked for a bank or for an energy company. They would have asked questions, hopefully internally, that would have led to the product or the service being better. Um, or, by the way, I mean the big one is they would have understood or they would have they encouraged spending on personnel, on operations, on marketing, on infrastructure, on IT, things that oftentimes when they come to the nonprofit, they're like, well, we can't really tell the donors that we spent money on marketing and we can't tell the donors that we spent money on technology, you know, that the donors want to know that the money went to the, to the end user. Yep. Well, the, the success of the the success of the program for the end user to me in most cases is highly dependent upon the investment made on in people and technology and things like that. Um, but yet they don't, they don't, at their own company, they would never have launched a product or a service without spending high, you know, spending vast amounts of money on research and development, yeah, marketing, rigor, uh, right. you know, all of the things. And yet it, it doesn't trans, you know, we try to sell, try to quote unquote, sell things in the, in the nonprofit sector based off of heart and soul and, you know, emotional connection. Yes, And that's yes. not really why most people buy things. They, 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 they buy them because you've encouraged them in that direction and you've told them why your product or service is the best. Um, you know, you've created a sense of, of, of um, loyalty to that, which all comes through uh, you know, high quality um, service, but also marketing, communications and other things. So I, I, I just, I, I mean, I guess if I, could say one thing to companies who are thinking about putting up, uh, you know, one of their employees on a board or a board member. I mean, an employee who's thinking about going to work uh, to uh, be on a board. Just don't take the same mentality that you would have applied to your day job and apply it to your board membership, because in most cases, that's what the director wants. That's what the ED wants. Um, now there are situations, and I think we all know of them, where the ED wants a board that just is a, a rubber stamp yeah, and doesn't ask to them. hard questions. Yep. And I think that that shows up down the road in scandal, failure, things like that. Um, and I would I would not join a board like that. If someone asked me to join a board where I felt like the only thing they wanted was for me to rubber stamp their ideas, then that's not a place for the majority of us. So but well that's put. Rare. That's rare. Yeah, but but so well put. And a, a great reminder, and it reminds me too, Brian, that for a listener right now, you need clear job descriptions for what it means to be on the board. And frankly, they need to listen to the last five minutes of your response, which is, you know, understanding the spirit of that, that we actually want, yes, we want your heart and soul, but we also want your brain. Right. And we want you to bring the acumen that you have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I'm delighted. Your, advice, you... your counsel, your wisdom. Right. Brian, this has been fantastic as I knew it would be. Lots of things to take away for our listeners. Any final advice, you know, for somebody, you and I run into this kind of person all the time. Hey, I'm thinking about getting into nonprofit leadership or I'm trying to advance up the ladder. Any final thoughts on that type of advice? Yeah. Again, might even go back to where. Uh, we started in a little bit about my journey. Uh, one, I think it's always, uh, the thing that scares me a little bit, uh, uh, especially when I talk to young people who want to get into the sector, you, they immediately go to, they want my job. <laughs> you know, they, they, want the, they want the thing that they see today uh, <laughs> right, in, the, right. you know, in my position. And I, what I try to tell them is it, it, it didn't, ha there was no linear path. My, right. my career has been a series of moves. So, but I think each one of those has made me uh, into a better human and in a better grant maker. Because as I said, I started, I had my own personal journey that we didn't even talk about, my whole personal journey of how I got to, to law school, become a lawyer, those paths. Right, right. That's informed me. I think, I, I think that I just keep trying to tell people when you get into the sector, there's no, there's, 
isn't really a linear path. So, so go where you, where you go. Be intellectually curious along the way. Have a bunch of interests so that you can carry a carry on a conversation. And when the moment of, uh, presents itself for you to have an opportunity, you know, you know a little bit about the bigger issues in the community, uh, uh, about other things that are going on in the world. So I always like to tell people to be intellectually curious, um, to be resilient, because believe me, the nonprofit sector, when I, I what I thought I was getting myself into, which was saving the world all the time, right? you get right. in here and you realize it's it's subject to the same pettiness and HR problems and frustrations, all of that. So have a sense of resilience and something else that keeps you rejuvenated and um, excited about uh about your own sense of purpose don't don't i would i guess my final thing on this is don't make the purpose of the organization your sense of purpose your yes. you need to have yes. other things that you aspire to that the organization feeds but isn't your entire life because i think that will end poorly for you Fantastic words of wisdom that are appropriate to finish a wonderful conversation, Brian. And I'm grateful. Of course, you know this is coming. My one parting gift I'm seeking from you is a book recommendation. We built a nice little recommendation list. And I wonder if you've got a book or maybe more than one, but that one in particular that you would share with our listeners. Yeah, I, I, well, the, I think one of the other things that people would know me uh, by here in this community is my love of books. I'm constantly buying books. I actually have a problem where I buy books. I, I buy them and I know that it's unlikely that I'll ever get the time to read them, but I just <laughs> need the book in my life. Exactly. Uh, and I, <laughs> you know, it's like I have this stack. But uh, I, I guess, you, you I, I'll put, I'll give you a couple of recommendations. One in just terms of productivity, life, things like that. I love the book um, uh, Essentialism. And this book is all about how to say no. It's all about how to, um, to, 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 in a nice way, and in a way, I think people come back to respect you more when you've told them nicely that you've got, you're focused, you, you have these things that you're really trying to spend your time on. So the book Essentialism is my go-to. I look at, the, I look at it all the time when I start to veer off yes, into yes. things, even like this morning, like this podcast, it took time for me to think about this. But I determined that it was in, it was related to an outcome that I wanted in my life. So nice. even small things like this go yep. into that. Uh, more, more um, sort of work related. Uh, I always go back to the book *Sapiens* by Yuval Harari. Just it talks about how life is, why we made choices that we've made, why our countries and communities look the way that they do. Um, and I just I love that book *Sapiens*. I've given it out numerous, numerous times to people. Agreed. I also love a book called The Nord The Nordic Theory of Everything, which is um it's a it's a Finnish writer's reflection on the US and how we chose to make decisions about how we treat each other. So what does our healthcare system look like? What does entrepreneurism look like? What is what does our version of capitalism look like? Uh, how do we uh treat people with home in a situation like homelessness, mental health? I love this book, The Nordic Theory of Everything, um, and I could go on and on. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a book on there's a book on awe. The, one of the things we're working on now is awe and wonder, and how important that is in the life of an individual. And then the last book that I'll leave you with is, in order to do good work, you need to understand numbers, and you need to understand when people are telling you things about the world, the state of the world, and how you're you know how you're going to change it one way or another, you need to understand basic math. And I use this book called Factfulness oh, yeah. by Hans Rosling, which, you know, you start with how do you interpret information that is presented to you to help you clarify uh, the world and to clarify the outcomes that you yourself are trying to move. And it, by, the, by the way, it also kind of tells you that when you get in a state of despair about the world, that we have made progress, that the world is better than it was uh, in many ways uh, compared to years ago. Uh, long way to go, a lot of work to do. But books like Factfulness remind me to do the math uh, uh, along the way. Fantastic. Uh, I've, I've, I've read two of them, Brian, but you've given me some great ones to add to my list. And I know our listeners now have a wonderful set 
of books to add to their summer reading list as this episode comes out in the summer of 23. These are good ones to add to the list. So Brian, again, thank you for everything, including those recommendations. And last question, of course, where can people find out more about you and the great work you're doing? Our website is gambrellfoundation.org. So it's G-A-M-B-R-E-L-L foundation.org. And that's where you can find out that. And um, I'm on all social medias as uh, D. Brian Collier. Brian, we'll link it up in the show notes. Uh, and again, thank you so much for joining me on the path. It was a pleasure. Great to, great to talk to you. Well, I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Brian as much as I did and came away with some genuinely practical ideas that can guide your professional journey and help your nonprofit organization be more effective. Don't forget about the show notes available on our website for this episode. It's number 213. Just go to patentmcdowell.com and to the podcast page, and you'll find out much more about Brian, the Gambrell Foundation, and some great book recommendations he added at the end of our conversation. As always, thanks for sharing this episode with someone else on the path. And if you have time, I'd love for you to write a review. Go to the Apple Podcast site and you can do just that, which will help uh, bring others to these great conversations. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, just look for the follow button on that same podcast page and you won't miss out on any of our weekly episodes. They come out every Thursday. Of course, if you like this episode, click on the episodes button at the top of that page and you can scroll through thumbnails of some of our most popular episodes or search by topic or guest name. Thanks for all you're doing in the nonprofit sector, especially right now, and keep up the good work for causes that are most meaningful to you. I'll keep bringing you content that can help you do it even better. Have a great week. I'll see you next time on The Path.